I believe some of the things that I'm going to share with you this afternoon are, to me, some of the most provoking and challenging quotes that I have read personally about the idea of integrating agriculture with our educational institutions. I want to start with a summary and go back to Revelation 14. The three angels' messages is the reason why the Seventh-day Adventist church exists. It does not exist for the purpose of identifying the beast merely or the Sabbath in contrast to Sunday. Those things are true. The investigative judgment is important, but the most distinctive feature of the three angels' messages is the gospel invitation that the first angel has. It is the work of every Seventh-day Adventist, every Seventh-day Adventist institution to give the final call to Christ as people are making their final decisions in earth's history. It is our responsibility to reach out with the blood of Jesus in hand to cover the sins of those that we can reach out to. It is not about doctrine. It is not about theology. It is not about uh, purity of belief in an intellectual sense. It is about the yielding of the heart to he who purchased the heart by bleeding from his heart for us. The work of agriculture in education, the purpose of agriculture in education is to fulfill that very purpose right here in our institutions of learning. The purpose of uniting agriculture with education or publishing or health work or church work of any other form is to be able to reach out to people who we couldn't connect with on any other level. I'll share with you a story. This happened within the context of my own family, my wife's family, actually. My wife's uh, stepfather is a laboring man. When I got to know her about 12 years ago, I was working for the church. And his perception of me at the time was the proverbial of heavenly, you know, I've said that wrong, heavenly minded, but what? No earthly good. And he was a common laboring man. He worked in a sawmill. He had other jobs similar. He was a common laboring man. And I remember when I first got into gardening, when my second child was born, my mother-in-law and uh, my wife's stepfather came over to our home. And he helped me that Christmas break build a small greenhouse for the garden that I had just started. We were at two ends of a workbench. She was on one side, I was on the other. And in that very awkward moment, it dawned on him that I was not the guy that he thought that I was. He walked around the edge of the table. Can I borrow you as a volunteer? Sure. He walked around the end of the workbench, stood right in front of me, embraced me and said, you're a real man. And I realized, and I'm being sincere, I realized at that point that he was able to connect with me over my ability to build something. His previous perception that I was of no earthly good hindered him from developing a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with me. 
And the purpose, again, of agriculture and education, whether it's the students or the community or church members or non-Adventist, Adventist, it doesn't matter. The purpose of agriculture is to connect with people in the context of our mission that we couldn't connect with in any other way. I recently did a seminar at the, Hatch at the Tehachapi Church in uh, Southern California. They're building a community garden. And members from their local community will be growing their own food on the grounds of a Seventh-day Adventist church. People who wouldn't come listen to a Bible study. People who wouldn't come to an evangelistic series. People who wouldn't buy from a coal porter are interested in growing food, knowing their farmer, interested in health. And is an opportunity to connect with people that we could not connect with in any other way. For the purpose of, over time, sharing with them the Christ, the creator that planted the first garden. Everything that we do, every motive for agriculture and education stems from the call of the first angel in Revelation chapter 14. Is magnified by the final appeal of that, that angel in Revelation 18, giving the loud cry, Come out of her, who? My people. To connect with people who God calls as his own through means which alone we can connect with them on. And for a growing part of our world, that's food. For a growing part of our world, that's environmental sustainability and stewardship. For a growing part of our world, that's local. For a growing part of our world, that's health. And Adventists who know the health message must acknowledge, as I always say, that if the right arm of the message is the health work, then it's attached to the body through a farm because the quality of the food that you eat is only as good uh, as the quality of the farm on which that food was grown. In a society where conventional agriculture is producing quantities of food that are of low quality, the quality of our health message is only as good as the ground on which that produce was grown. A friend of mine's Lynn Hoag. I don't know if you've heard his name. He's well known for uh, learning the Ellen White tree planting method from Ellen White's grandson, Clarence. He tells the story of being in Brazil, working with an Adventist school. He's doing a tree planting seminar at which were uh, four, I believe, professors from a local Brazilian university. And as he had finished planting the trees there in Brazil with those college, university educated professors in attendance, he shared how and where the tree planting method came from. And he shared with them how a God of love shared the best methods for growing food with a young woman by the name of Ellen White because he loved people enough to teach them how to grow food better. At the end of the presentation, when all the other people had left, he said to me that the four professors came up to him and said, we've never heard a method taught like this before. And they came back the next time to hear him speak again. Would they come to hear the Sabbath preach? Would they come to hear the mark of the beast or the investigative judgment? Would they come? I don't know. But I know they came to that. 
And I know they came back because they heard that. And it was an opportunity to share the creator of the universe through the planting of a tree with people we wouldn't normally connect with. Everything we do has to be done in light of our mission as a people to reach the lost. One of the most interesting quotes that I've ever read is what I'm going to read to you now. It's a little bit long. It's three paragraphs spread out over probably eight slides or something. It comes from a Review and Herald article that Ellen White wrote. She says, God has revealed to me that we are in positive danger of bringing into our educational work the customs and fashions that prevail in the schools of the world. If the teachers are not guarded in their work, they will place on the necks of their students, what? Worldly yokes. Instead of the yoke of Christ. Ellen White clearly links the yoke that you wear to the education you receive. And the work of the teacher is unavoidably going to place one of two yokes on every student in the classroom. It will either be the yoke of Christ that the student wears placed on its head by the teacher. It will only be one of the two. Education is about putting on students the easy, restful yoke of Jesus Christ to take the burden off the shoulders of our young people and teach them to give them to the burden bearer. Of course, using an agricultural symbol in the work of education, she talks about the yoke. She goes on specifically, the plan of the schools we shall establish in these closing days of the work is to be of an entirely different order from those we have instituted in the past. I want to be careful in implying, applying that to today's work, but I would suggest to you, if it's not identically the same, it's really close to the same, that we at this point in Earth's history, being far closer to the coming of Jesus than she was when she wrote that in 1908, need to be much more careful in our educational methods. We need to be very careful to not do what we've always done because that's what's always been done. We may have to disregard everything that we have known about education and do something entirely different. But if it means putting on the students the yoke of Christ instead of the yoke of the world, leading them to heaven instead of the alternative, then disregarding everything we've done is well worth the price. As I shared with you in the previous two hours, 40, 50% conservative number of Adventist young people are leaving the church immediately after graduating from school. It is very clear with that statistic that many of our young people are not wearing the yoke of Christ. They are burdened and they are revealing their burdens by trying to find relief in all the wrong places. 
Many of them are not rebellious. Many of them are not defiant. Many of them are not trying to be intentionally stubborn. Many of them are carrying personal burdens that they are seeking relief for that they have not been able to find in the church. They are desperate. They are hungry. They are searching souls looking to get the burden off the back. And it's the work of educators, teachers, administrators to help our young people find rest in Christ through the educational process. And doing that is worth the price of disregarding everything we have known. If it will get that 40, get that 50, whatever percent it is of our kids into the kingdom of heaven, it will be well worth that price and many times over. She goes on. I have been shown that in our educational work, we are not to follow the methods that have been adopted in our older established schools. There is among us too much clinging to old customs. And because of this, we are far behind where we should be in the development of what? The three angels' messages. I have to be honest to you, having 10 years of evangelism experience, knocking on thousands of doors, giving hundreds of Bible studies, preaching numbers of an evangelistic series, preaching in dozens and dozens of churches, hundreds of sermons, I must confess to you everything that I have often known about the second coming of Jesus is wrong. So often we are waiting on the world to get bad enough so Jesus can come. So often we're waiting on on the church to do this or the church to do that. But God is waiting right here. The crux of the matter, the fork in the road in that quote is that because of the way we have educated, our methods of academics have hindered us from fulfilling our very mission as a church. The reason why we wait here today is because of how we have educated Yesterday. Today is a day for change. Today is an opportunity to embrace a decision that will send us in a different direction. This might feel negative, this might feel solemn, it might feel challenging to you, and perhaps appropriately so. But the flip side, the positive side, the solution side to this is if we make the decision to disregard what we have done and do what we should, we can no longer delay the development of the third angel's message, but we can accelerate the development of that mission. By changing our model of education, we can not just hinder the second coming of Jesus, but we can allow and precipitate and encourage and push that day to come sooner. We desire so much to see Jesus face to face, person to person. By changing how we educate today, we may make it possible for Jesus to come tomorrow because our young people will be capable of fulfilling the church's mission. She goes on. Because men could not comprehend the purpose of God and the plans laid before us for the education of the workers, Methods have been followed in some of our schools which have retarded rather than advanced the work of God. Years have passed into eternity with small results that might have shown the accomplishment of a great and sacred work. 
if the Lord's will had been done by the workers in earth as angels do it in heaven, much that now remains to be done would be already accomplished and noble results would be seen to follow our missionary efforts. And the next quote, the next sentence, if you could anticipate it, probably wouldn't be what you're about to read. The usefulness learned on the school farm is the very education that is most essential for those who go out as missionaries to many foreign fields. The school farm, the ABC of education, is so intimately bound to the work of education, the development of character like it brought in Moses, like it brought in David, like it brought in Joseph, like it brought in so many others, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, William Miller. The work of the farm in the school is the mechanism that develops the character in the missionary worker trained at the school so that he, she, they are able to go out as effective missionaries. Not merely because they can grow their own food and shove it in their mouth, but because it develops in them the traits that they need to be the people God needs them to be. I'll read it to you again. The usefulness learned on the school farm is the very education that is most essential to those who go out as missionaries to many foreign fields. If this training is given with the glory of God in view, great results will be seen. No work will be more effectual than that done by those who, having obtained education and practical life, go forth to mission fields with the message of truth prepared to instruct as they've been instructed. The knowledge they've obtained in tilling the soil, in erection of buildings, and in other lines of manual work, and which they carry with them to their field of labor, will make them a blessing even in heathen lands. The Seventh-day Adventist young person trained on a school grounded in farm-based learning may sound entirely radical and foreign, maybe even heretical and, and apostate from an educational point of view but it is the very core of God's character and mission-based training program. It is the very education that will make them effective in places where you would expect them to be so ineffective. Before we can carry the third paragraph, before we can carry the message of present truth in all its fullness to other countries, we must first break every yoke. We must come into the line of true education, walking in the wisdom of God and not in the wisdom of the world. God calls for messengers who will be true reformers. We must educate, educate to prepare a people who will understand the message and then give the message to the world. The sobering reality of that paragraph, that last paragraph, is that that's a conditional prophecy. It is a conditional prophecy. You're familiar, perhaps, with conditional prophecies. If this, then that. If we do this, God will do that. If we don't do this, God will do that. Before we can carry is a prerequisite word to use an academic term, there is an eschatological prerequisite to finishing the work of God. You know what eschatology is? The study of last day things. 
there is a prerequisite to Jesus coming. And in that paragraph, it is breaking the yoke of the worldly model of education that we have followed and adopting the yoke of Christ for ourselves and putting that yoke of education and that yoke of religion, the religion of Christ, upon our young people and upon ourselves. It's a conditional prophecy. If we keep doing what we have always done, the quote implies that we will get what we have always got and Jesus will be coming no time time soon. If we stop doing what we've always done because that's the way it's always been done, then we will stop getting what we've always gotten. If we start doing what God calls us to do, make the change, make the reform, make the decision to do it different, then we'll get what we all really want. And that's the second coming of Jesus. The work of agriculture and education is so intimately bound to the mission of our church that the second coming of Christ hinges upon that model being carried out. That sounds crazy. It sounds radical to me to stand here to say it to you. God often does things that seem so contrary to the world's wisdom. But as I shared with you the last couple hours, even the world is recognizing at this point that a nature-based, farm-based, hands-on learning-based education is far superior to anything else that they're doing currently. And some of them have had the courage to implement that truth. And now it's our turn. Now it's our turn. This quote here is perhaps, let me take it off the slide. This quote here is perhaps one of those challenging quotes that I'll read to you. It's hard. I want to share it in love. I want to share it not in criticism. I want to share it carefully and very clearly. It is not a quote of criticism. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But it is not an easy quote to read. There are those who are not adapted, and I believe that's emotionally, intellectually adapted, to agricultural work, these should not devise or plan in our conferences. For they will hold everything from advancing in these lines. This has held our people from advancing in the past. If the land is cultivated, it will with the blessing of God supply our necessities. In another place, I didn't put it up here, she says, if you do not value agricultural work, you have no business working for our schools. Why do I say that's a really hard quote? She's placing agriculture and the importance of hands-on learning on a level that is a prerequisite for employment. It is a criteria on your resume to qualify you for leading in the church. Why do I say that I'm not criticizing anybody here? Because I was invited here by your conference president because he heard something else that I had spoken about because he already believes it and so many other people I believe in this conference are supporting that movement. Not because they need to be criticized. I'm sharing that with you because they are fulfilling their obligation in God's system of education and they need your support. They need your encouragement. They need your prayers in carrying out in the light of an ingrained, rutted mentality of education to carry out God's model when, to be quite honest with you, Adventists have failed at it and nobody even really knows what it looks like. 
Many leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in our denomination are expressing a willingness to step forward and experiment with a new brand of education more in line with what we understand because we're dissatisfied with the results that we're getting. And they don't need criticism. They need support. They need encouragement. They need prayer. They need resources. We need a training school that trains young people how to farm so that other farm schools can have farm managers. I get calls regularly. Do you know somebody that can run our farm? Do you know somebody that can start our garden? Do you know somebody that can, here in the United States, other places? We right now are at the beginning stages of trying to implement a model of education that we have so far removed from that we're, we're basically starting from nothing. And we need all the support from every church member that we can possibly get. I left ministry to go into farming. I knew nothing about farming. But I did it because I read that quote. And the one that I read to you before it. And I said, Lord, I don't know anything about it. But that's a really clear quote. I don't know anybody else that's willing to do it, so I'm going to go do it. And that was the end of the discussion for me. I'll do it. I don't know how to do it. Lord, help me. It's up to you. I'm sharing that quote with you not as a criticism, but as an encouragement to you to support those who are willing to risk, to find a better way, to say 40, 50% of my young people in my conference, in my church, in my school, leaving this denomination to be potentially lost forever is not acceptable to me, and I will risk to find a better way. They need support. Ellen White in that paragraph is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 58. You as Adventists probably know that because of verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their, what? Transgressions, their sins. But verse 6, talking about the hypocritical fasting that the Israelites so often practice, God says, is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. I love that promise. It wasn't until I connected it with Matthew chapter 28 verses, excuse me, 11 verses 28 to 30 that that really made sense, that Isaiah 58 is the gospel invitation to come to Jesus, to exchange the worldly, burdensome, painful, raw yoke that we so often wear. For the yoke of Christ, which is easy and light. And she uses that passage, that phraseology in the context of education and agriculture. To break the yoke and invite people, our students, to come to Christ. And find the peace that they need as young people. To go back to the story of Joseph and Pharaoh... Pharaoh looking at his dream, unknown to him, but ominous. Pharaoh was burdened. And Joseph said, God will give you an answer of peace. The work of education, the invitation of Isaiah 58, is the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11 to come to me. It is the invitation of the first angel is the invitation of the angel in Revelation 18. Come out of her, my people, and go where? To me. To me.
If they come out of Babylon, they must go to someone. And it is to come to Jesus. Talking about finances for just a brief moment. Many people view the farm as a solution to the schools, the church's educational indebtedness. Simultaneously, most Americans know that the best way to get rich is not to go start a farm. A friend of mine who contributed to me going into farming told me when I told him I was leaving church work, he says, what, you want to be poor? He taught me how to prune trees and some other landscaping stuff. Got me reading books on agriculture and gardening and such. He's a great guy. He was joking, of course, when I told him I was going to go into farming. Do you want to be poor? We simultaneously know that farming is not the best way to get rich, but when we combine farming with uh, education, we somehow think that farms are magically going to resolve the financial burdens of our schools. The purpose of the farm on the school is not to relieve the debt of the school, to make it a cash cow. Now let's read this quote here. Even from the viewpoint of financial results, the expense required for manual training would prove the truest economy would be the most financially sound and reasonable decision to make. Multitudes of our boys. Did you know that the majority of the Christian denomination is female? What happened to this room when they had the tea party? Visit church after church, Adventist church, non-denominational church, Baptist church, Catholic church, and you will find the majority of the Christian church is female. Because Satan has a very specific, intentional, devious plan to destroy men in society. And she is highlighting the specific need of boys, two million people in our prison system in America. They're not all girls. They could have been the best, brightest, most successful men in America, but Satan snatched them, punished them, beat them down into a literal prison. And she's addressing that right here. Multitudes of our boys would be kept from the street corner and from the groggery, the expenditure for gardens, workshops, and baths. I don't quite know what that is would be more than met by the saving on hospitals and reformatories. When men aren't, when boys aren't educated properly, they get into trouble, they need correction and medical help. That describes our society today. Forget the expense that a farm would cost a school. Forget the amount of money that would be invested in the farm, even if it never made money. She says it would be the best investment you would ever make. In another place, she says if it cost 10 times as much, it would still be worth it. Because keeping those boys off that street and out of trouble would be the most common sense, financially sound decision that you could possibly make. And what do we do with boys? We strap boys to a desk for eight hours a day for the first 18 years of their life and expect them to come out sane. Is it working? She goes on. And the youth themselves trained to habits of industry and skilled in lines of usefulness and productive labor. Who 
can estimate their value to society and the nation. Satan is destroying this country one male student at a time by a hellish, corrupt educational model. I'm not being sexist. I'm not being patriarchal. But there is a real, underestimated, belittled value to men, particularly godly men in society, that Satan does not want to see. And he is systematically destroying our culture by attacking boys through an educational method that didn't come from God. And so what is the value of those men in comparison to the expense of running a farm? In the words of Visa, there are some things, or this is American Express, there are some things that money can't buy. But it is Visa, isn't it? MasterCard, one of those guys. Are your men worth it? Are your boys worth it? I'd ask a painful question and ask you how many of you have a son or a grandson who's no longer in the church and worse, is in trouble. And we all know too many stories just like that. It's time for change. It's time to stop that, to break that yoke, and to do something different, to do something very, very different. One last quote that I want to end with. This is probably my favorite promise in regard to education. The first part's a little negative. It describes our situation perfectly right now. The last part is very promising. When those who have reached the years of youth and manhood see no difference between our schools and the colleges of the world and have no preference for which they attend, though error is taught, by precept and example in the schools of the world, then there is need of closely examining the reasons that lead to such a conclusion. We have reached that point in Adventist history. We have reached that point in Christian educational history where people no longer value, like we should, religious, private, faith-based education. Seventh-day Adventists in particular should value it the most. But we are seeing in our denomination Parents, grandparents, churches, young people vote clearly and loudly that the expense of Adventist private education is too much for an education that in all honesty, in some cases, is not substantially different at all. You can throw a Bible class into an otherwise worldly educational model, but that does not mean you should charge nine, $10,000, $12,000 for it. One Bible class a day does not make an educational model Adventist. It's the whole structure together combined, spiritual, mission-driven, academic, yes, but hands-on also. The whole package is what makes Adventist education unique. It's what makes it so potentially successful that it would justify the cost of sending your kid to that school 
Parents in the world will sacrifice far more financially than that for their children. It is not about the money. You can drop $20,000, $30,000 on a car for a kid. You can drop tens of thousands of dollars on your kid's sports program. You can drop thousands of dollars on vacations and entertainment. You can spend $1,000 just on video games in five minutes. It is not about the money. It is about the perception that what you're getting in exchange for the money does not justify the, the cost. And it's now about us producing something that's uniquely and distinctly God-centered and radical enough that parents, teachers, young people, church members, whoever, would want to sacrifice anything to send their kids there. Right now we have reached a point where some people see no difference. Our schools are closing because people are voting not to buy the product. And I want you to understand, I'm not being critical. I am being staunchly right now defending of an Adventist educational institutional model. I am right now standing solidly and saying that Adventist, true Adventist education is worth every penny of $10,000 and a whole lot more. What would the financial value be to the Seventh-day Adventist church if those 50-40% of our young people stayed in the church as tithe and offering paying active church members? How many tens and hundreds and millions of dollars would flow into the church by keeping just a fraction of those young people? Adventist education is worth every penny and a whole lot more. And it will certainly pay off long term. I am not being critical. But I am being very sincere and trying to express that with my demeanor, that if we want to keep those young people and make a sound financial decision for our church, then it is time to seriously examine the reasons for what we're seeing. It should be done today before another Adventist school is closed. It should be done today so we can figure it out and keep another Baptist school open. Now that sounds really funny to a group of Adventists, doesn't it? We should be such a light and influence to the world that other denominations become centers of the righteousness of Christ, spreading the gospel through the work of influence because we have figured out how to reverse the trend. Other churches are bleeding their youth because no one will stop and examine the reasons why this is happening. If I can stand in a Jesuit high school and talk to them about agriculture, I am certain that I can stand in another denomination's educational institution and tell them how to keep their kids in the faith and trust God that he'll figure out how to get them into the present truth. That's not my job. My job is to lead them to Jesus. Your job is to lead them to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit's job to correct and enlighten their concept of doctrine. When somebody loves Christ, all that stuff will fix itself. I would be happy for Fresno Adventist Academy to be a beacon to every other educational institution of private sorts in the Central Valley of California. And so would you. All of us would relish the moment when Adventism and Adventist education became the initiative for a worldwide revival revival 
in educational practices. It is time to reevaluate, examine the reasons why what's happening to us is happening to us. She goes on, this is the promising part. Our institutions of learning may swing into worldly conformity. Step by step, they may advance to the world. But they are prisoners of hope. And God will correct and enlighten us and bring us back to our upright position of distinction from this world. I have not given up. I am not discouraged. I am not depressed. I am not pessimistic about the future of Adventist education. That is a promise that I hold God as a man of his word to. He will correct. He will enlighten. He will bring us back to where we are supposed to be. But it requires our participation and our willingness to reverse what we have been doing, to abandon the way it's been done because that's the way it's been done and to say, how does it need today to be done? I invite you to be reformers. I invite you as Seventh-day Adventists who live in the most unique time in Earth's history to take your place in God's church, in God's movement, and to stand with him in the effort to save those that are perishing. I'm asking you today to make your stand with Christ, to reevaluate the way things have been done in favor of the way things should be done. I am inviting you today to show your support for God's method of reaching our young people. I'm asking you today to show your frustration, your dissatisfaction with 50% of your young people leaving the church and say, today, no more. I am appealing to you as conscientious Christians to today decide that what has been will no more be. And from today forward, to do what God has always wanted to be done. I'm asking you today to no longer be the tail that follows the world through a method that won't lead to success. And I'm asking you today to make a decision to follow God who will make you the head, leaders, pioneers, examples. I'm asking you today to give Jesus Christ, whose hearts overflow with love and goodness, to give you the blessings in the eyes of the world that he so longs to give. I'm asking you today to think, to pray, to make a decision that will never be regretted, that will never be a temptation for you to change, to make a solid, personal, thoughtful decision to reevaluate what we're doing and to break the yoke and to come into line with God.
and allow him to finish that work in us and through us and bring us to that place where he wants us all to be in heaven, in the kingdom of glory, around the tree of life, in the garden of Eden, to eat that fruit by the side of Jesus who created that with his own hand because he loved Adam and Eve and everyone through Earth's history. I did not come here today, this week, to play. I believe as a Seventh-day Adventist that it is time for Jesus to come and that we must behave consistently with our profession. As I have shared with you this week, some of the things that I have shared with you, I have shared with you of a sense of obligation because God has asked me to share it. Because what I read, I read myself, I read to you. Remember the one quote, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. She says, let the teacher call attention to what the Bible says about agriculture. I'm trying to fulfill my responsibility in response to that quote. I'm asking you today to join me in that process. And I hope you'll understand where I'm coming from, never attempting to be critical, but to encourage us to reach out to the hand of God who wants to give us so much and give our children so much. I'm not content. I am not content. And I hope you will neither be with the way things are and just letting them be. I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to thank you so much again for listening to me. I'd like to ask you to pray for our ministry. I'd like you to pray for Fresno Adventist Academy and every other school that's attempting to figure this out. We are at the beginning. We don't know everything. But I certainly thank you from my heart for listening so attentively. I've seen the reactions on many of your faces. I've heard your many comments to me. I'm so very grateful to be able to share with you what God has been challenging me with. And I want to pray with you and ask that God would bless you all as you seek to follow him as the best you can in life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much. What a privilege to be a Seventh-day Adventist, a Christian at this time of Earth's history. Discouraging sometimes, yes. Hard sometimes, often. But in the face of hardships, you've blessed so many of us and you've blessed me. It's a privilege we have to be here together and I'm so thankful that you've allowed it. I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ and the purchase that he made for my life to redeem me and to redeem all of us from he who claimed us the prince of this world as his own. And that you from a heart of love poured out yourself to claim us back from him who sought to hurt us. Lord, I pray that you'd give wisdom to everyone here, to this conference, to this school, as they contemplate their path in life, as they think about the things that I have shared, that you would bless those things, those thoughts with your Holy Spirit. As I have shared, and certain things would probably be forgotten, I ask that you would erase them from the memory, and that you would help the mind to cling to that which is true, to understand for themselves 
and above all things to know you in whom is life eternal, Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you. We pray this today in his precious name and let us all together say amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.